0: I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. When a lesbian couple went missing for three days in Medford, Oregon, concerns for their safety were immediate. Roxanne and Michelle were partners and vocal supporters of gay rights. When their bodies were discovered, it led investigators down a path of destruction left behind by a homophobic man obsessed with an exotic dancer who had already committed another hate field murder mere weeks before he was caught by police. Today's story is about the murders of Roxanne Ellis, Michelle Abdel, and Scott George, those that lost their lives due to hate, fear, and judgment. Stay tuned at the end of the case today as we will be joined by Nancy Duffy, the executive producer of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, for an exclusive conversation where we discuss how they were able to safely make a new season of our favorite true crime series, even during a pandemic, the challenges they overcame, and she'll even share some clues with us as to what kind of mysteries we can expect from the new season. It's Pride Month. While I'm sad the block parties and parades are canceled yet again, there are many ways we can still all celebrate together. There's really no wrong way to celebrate pride. As an ally, speaking to allies, there are a lot of things you can do at home to celebrate pride. And no, they don't include buying the limited edition rainbow-themed fill-in-the-blank item of the year. Perhaps you aren't familiar with why Pride is held in June. That's where the Stonewall Riots come in. On June 28, 1969, at a New York gay club called the Stonewall Inn, a raid led to a change of trajectory for the gay rights movement. I won't get into deep detail, but for anyone that might not know, before that June night, New York law made it illegal to serve alcohol at gay bars as gatherings of homosexuals was deemed disorderly. Eventually, the laws were overturned in 1966, but simple behaviors that straights don't even think about, like holding hands, kissing, hugging, or even dancing together, were still outlawed. So the police would frequently raid known gay establishments. With the bars being owned by the mafia, and they weren't really trailblazers, they just saw that there was money to be made and didn't care about laws and such. And the corrupt cops that worked with the mafia, they were usually warned before a raid would occur. But not that June night. A few days before the known uprising, police arrested multiple employees of Stonewall before returning that Friday night. With arrests taking place, the Stonewall community had had enough and stood up against the police, throwing bricks, bottles, and resisting. Some iconic leaders from the six days of resistance that followed were Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and Stormé DeLavraye. First, the police retreated into the Stonewall. Then they came out beating people and throwing tear gas. The riots led to national coverage and a change in the conversation. Empowered by those that stood up against what was wrong, the gay rights movement was renewed and real change started to come. Another way to celebrate pride or to support the LGBTQIA community is to vote and to vote in the most American way, with your money. While it's well-known, establishments like Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A, and Burrito Pasta are anti-gay. And yes, I know the Burrito CEO was like, we're so sorry, we changed our mind. But that was only after it was discovered they were bigots. So that one has always been a bit of a, yeah, right, for me. As we see company logos, including our own, turn to a rainbow for the month to show support and alliance, it's important to know where the money you spend on those companies goes. For example, Amazon, Walmart, and McDonald's have all done the right thing. They express their support, even at the risk of losing bigoted customers, of gay rights. Except here's the thing. They all give millions of dollars to PACs, groups that spend money to get laws made to basically buy their way out of paying taxes or getting laws passed that protect their interests. For those companies, their PACs are split 50-50. So half the money goes Democratic, half Republican, which kind of makes you think, why even donate? You're kind of, you know, splitting yourself down the middle. In February of this year, there was a vote for the Equality Act, a law updating protections for the LGBTQIA community. While it did get passed, it was nearly a split down party lines, meaning the money Walmart gave, for example, was split, sending about $400,000 to the Republicans that voted against the Equality Act. If everyone that was for gay rights stopped shopping at Walmart until they stopped donating to such people, we could make a big difference. And that goes for all those companies. But I know that's incredibly hard. I definitely make purchases from places I know I shouldn't from time to time, but I try my best not to and I try to stay informed. So that is my mostly straight to mostly straight advice on pride. And being on brand for the straights, it's very boring information. Like those people that are like, why aren't there straight pride months? It's like, what? Everything has been based around heteronorms and it's so boring. Let's say, look at November. It is the whitest, straightest month. And it's the worst. So be quiet with that nonsense. Roxana Roxanne K. Wagner Ellis was born on November 3, 1942, in Amarillo, Texas. Michelle Abdel was born in Roseburg, Oregon, on July 8, 1953. While they had differences in age and different paths in life, in 1990, those paths crossed in a Colorado Springs medical office where Roxanne was working as an obstetrics nurse. Michelle had moved to the area and started working at the same clinic. The two women clicked and fell in love, eventually becoming partners as gay marriage was still not legalized, but they did have a beautiful ceremony sealing their love and devotion to one another. Roxanne was divorced and had two children and a grandchild, making Michelle a stepmom and stepgrandmother. While they enjoyed Colorado Springs, the homophobia of the area and era became too much. They joined other LGBTQIA folks that were making their way to the West Coast, where their love and lifestyles were more accepted. They settled into the town of Medford, Oregon. Medford is about five hours south of Portland, well, that's if I'm driving, and is only 27 miles from the Northern California border and has a population now of just over 81,000 people. Building and supporting their community was of top importance to the women. They were known for having helped with caregiving for a gay couple that was dying of AIDS, bringing them daily meals, working around their house and yard, even assisting with medical support. They gave lectures at schools about lesbianism and even went on television to discuss gay rights. But it's not like Oregon or any other West Coast state was so much better or ahead of their time than Colorado. Soon after Roxanne and Michelle moved to Oregon, anti-gay legislation known as Ballot Measure 9 came to the forefront of Oregon politics. The goal of the measure's passing was to amend the Oregon Constitution so it would forbid any civil rights protection based on sexuality. It also set out to put homosexuality in the same box as pedophilia and then force schools to teach about both under the same umbrella of being, quote, abnormal wrong, unnatural, and perverse, and that these behaviors are to be discouraged and avoided. And this was just back in 1992. I mean, I was nine years old. This wasn't even 30 years ago, so it's not like this law was ancient history. Luckily for everyone except ugly, nasty bigots, the measure didn't pass. But that was for the state. Unfortunately, there were county measures that targeted smaller, more rural areas with ballots that had the same goals of limiting rights. These additional measures led to the women both becoming involved in the campaigns, Michelle's mother even telling the Oregonian that her involvement was, quote, just who she was. It wasn't her driving force. She was not a militant, but she was firm. Besides being mothers, daughters, grandmothers, and pillars of the Medford gay community, they were also successful businesswomen, owning and operating their own property management company. Their business allowed them to spend time working together and with Roxanne's daughter, Lori, as she was employed by them. On top of all of that, they got to be their own bosses. Property management duties include, but are not limited to, advertising available properties, lease signings, maintaining the property, securing the property, managing finances, and showing properties to potential renters. It was that last and most mundane duty that would change everything for Roxanne, Michelle, and their loved ones. On December 4, 1995, Roxanne left her office as she had received a call earlier that day. It had been a man asking to see a property at a duplex. The showing was scheduled for 11 a.m. that same day. The requested apartment was a vacant home at Sheridan Court in Medford. That same afternoon, Roxanne was scheduled to show another property at 2 p.m., but she didn't show up to that appointment. Roxanne being a professional, this was totally uncharacteristic and very worrisome, especially to her daughter Lori, who, upon learning of her mom not arriving to the showing, immediately started to page her on her beeper. Lori also called Roxanne's cell multiple times, neither eliciting a response. Okay, total side topic, I found this really interesting. So this case was covered on Forensic Files and Very Bad Men, and they were filmed somewhat close to each other or at least released around the same time. And it was really interesting because in one, Lori, the daughter, is much more emotional. And when she's in that emotional state, she said, I called and paged her at least 30 times on each thing. And then on the other show, she's much more calm and it seems like there's more time that has passed. And she said, oh, I called her at least three or four times. And I found that so interesting, not that She's a liar or, you know, making things up or anything like that. But just we talk about false confessions mm-hmm. or um inaccurate eyewitnesses and things like that. And I think it's it was just kind of a good example of even someone that is so involved in the case. Still, their truth changes.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like my last episode where the book I read two books and they're mm-hmm. slightly different on a topic. Were you able to corroborate one or the other through? No,
0: I saw I I. I went through some legal paperwork and it just said, yeah, Yeah. that she had reached out. But yeah, I just found that not and it's not a blame or that she's anything towards her at all. Just kind of like, you know, just always take a step back when you see information about Mm -hmm. stuff, because even the people that are super close to it, your brain just does weird stuff, you know. So I just found that really interesting. Two hours later, at 4 p.m., Roxanne did finally get in contact with her daughter and explained she had been out doing some shopping. As comforting as it was to hear from her mother, Lori was still concerned and found Roxanne's behaviors very troubling. Shopping or not, it wasn't like her to ignore calls or pages. Even when speaking on the phone, Roxanne just seemed off, staying uncharacteristically quiet. Lori wasn't having it and started to probe her mother as to what had happened with the missed showing. Roxanne's excuse? She must have had the wrong address. So Lori pressed more. Okay, fine, you had the wrong address, but then why didn't you respond to the pages or phone calls? Oh, the lines must have been busy. Lori was not satisfied with those responses, but the conversation ended anyway. A half hour later, 4.30 p.m., Roxanne called Michelle at work, saying she was having car trouble and she needed her help. Michelle let an employee know she was leaving to go assist Roxanne and left a voicemail for Lori with the same information, letting her know that once she was able to get the battery jumped, they would call Lori back and clear things up. But the everything is okay phone call was never made. As the hours dragged on, Lori became even more concerned and started to trace her mother's steps. She went to the Sheridan Court residence, the site of the 11 a.m. appointment, and found Roxanne's truck, but it wasn't parked. She happened to have pulled up behind the truck as it started to leave the complex, so Lori followed. Honking and flashing her lights, she was desperate to get the driver to pull over. Eventually, whomever it was that was driving stopped and pulled to the side of the road. Lori did the same and began approaching the truck. But the pulling over had only been a ruse to get Lori out of her car. Luckily, the driver didn't wait for Lori, seeing as this was a potentially dangerous encounter, and they sped off. Doing her best to chase, Lori couldn't keep up, and she lost sight of the truck. That was the final straw for Lori's concern to grow from worried to great. Stopping at a gas station, she called 911 to report everything that had been going on. Returning to Sheridan Court, Lori met up with Dan Abdel, Michelle's brother. Together, they began looking around the parking lot. That's when they found Michelle's car. Her white Honda was parked at the complex, and while Michelle was always known to be responsible and safe, the car had been left unlocked and contained Michelle's jacket, camcorder, and purse. The police arrived and took the mysterious disappearance of the women seriously, assigning detectives right away. They started to interview those that lived at the Sheridan Court residence, hoping they might get lucky and find an eyewitness to something, anything, whatever it was that had happened to these women. Some of those residents were Tony Newman and her 14-year-old son, Chris Newman. Tony informed the police that when she came home from work the night of the 4th, she saw a man standing in front of the Sheridan Court residence. Her son had even more to add to the case. That same afternoon, he had seen Roxanne's truck parked in front of the Sheridan Court residence. Later that night, the same truck was backed into the garage. Throughout the day, he heard the garage door opening and closing and cars moving in and out of it. In the same driveway, he met a man whom he spoke to, and while he didn't get a name, he did get his description. Both of the Newmans gave their descriptions to the police, creating a profile of a man in his mid-twenties with brown hair, small eyes, thin lips, and glasses. A composite sketch was made and became part of the search efforts. For days, friends, family, and police desperately searched for the women. As the time went on without any answers, the threats the women received over the years in response to their activism went from empty words from bigots to potential leads in their disappearance. Unbeknownst to the searchers, on the night of the 4th, a man named Todd Van Duser was working on his car at the Mariposa Townhouse apartment in Medford when he looked up to see a man that resembled the police sketch who pulled up in a canopied pickup truck. The man parked the truck, got out, threw something away, and walked off. As early as Tuesday night, but throughout the next few days, there were reports from residents of a foul odor coming from the mystery truck. On Thursday, a man called the police. Jerry Walker was a cable guy who lived in the area and had been out on his first call of the day when he looked across the parking lot and saw a truck. It was parked in the corner and matched the description of the truck it seemed everyone was talking about and looking for. Thinking the truck might be leaking oil, the small pool of liquid beneath it was looked at more closely. It wasn't oil that was leaking. It was blood. Lori had been following the police's efforts by listening to her personal police scanner. Anytime there was a hint someone might have found something, Lori would race off to see what it was. Then she heard the call come over the radio. Truck found... Ellis Abdel. Lori drove as fast as she could and arrived at the scene. That's when the police broke the horrible news. Police had arrived and upon opening the back of the enclosed truck made the shocking and devastating discovery. Roxanne and Michelle dead. Both women had their mouths, ankles and wrists bound with duct tape and had been shot twice in the head. Their bodies were wrapped in drapes and covered with cardboard boxes. The bullet casings near the bodies and the blood splatter on the inside of the truck told investigators the murders had taken place right there. With a footprint on the bumper, fingerprints on the duct tape, and fingerprints on the Sheridan Court residence, the police had a strong foundation for finding whomever had murdered Roxanna Michelle. They also had the sketch that was made based on the eyewitness accounts of the neighbors. From the nose shape to the glasses, the sketch looked remarkably familiar, especially to those close to the case. That's because the sketch looked almost identical to one Jerry Walker, the cable guy.
1: Wait a minute. Yes. Didn't you say he just was outside and saw the truck? Mm hmm. Interesting.
0: Hmm. As police dove further into Jerry's story, they soon learned that, similar or not, he had an alibi. So, good guess, Emily. What? That's called a red herring. Hmm. On the day of the murders, he had been home on his lunch break watching the news. The same news that for the next few days was providing extensive coverage to the case of the missing couple. Hence why Jerry knew what the truck looked like. He wasn't the guy. Three days after the bodies were discovered, the police got an unusual phone call. It was from Darlene Bradshaw, an accountant in Medford. It was December 10th, and the news of the murders was now national. While the police didn't have a suspect yet, they had some evidence working in their favor, like the bodies, the witnesses, the truck. And when the duct tape was processed, multiple prints were found on the sticky side. And on the bumper of the truck, they had multiple negative shoe prints, meaning that the shoe didn't make the print, but they left a print in the dust and dirt on the metal bumper. And, of course, the sketch, a sketch that Darlene knew was of a man named Robert Ackerman. She knew that face well, as it was of her own son. Oh, no. Darlene and Robert had recently moved to Medford from California. When they first arrived, only two weeks prior to the murders, Roxanne had shown them a property at the Sheridan Court residence. Not just a property, but the property that she went to show on the day she was killed. That information, along with the sketch and Darlene reporting her son was exhibiting strange behavior the day the women went missing, was enough to convince police they might be on the right track. As the interview with Darlene went on, she showed them the moving boxes they had used in their recent move. Comparing addresses and labels on the boxes, detectives found that they matched the ones found strewn atop Roxanne and Michelle's bodies in the truck. Investigators then looked at Roxanne's phone history. Normally, when she had a showing, she would have written down a person's name. Perhaps she was in a rush or the person on the phone just didn't want to give it. But that day, there was no name but there was a name on the phone bill. A call had been placed to Roxanne on the morning of the 4th, and that call came from a local cheap motel, the Tiki Lodge. Police went to the lodge to try and find out who had been staying there and who could have made that call. Of course, the phone tracking system at the motel was broken, leaving them with only names of those that had been staying there on the 4th. You can imagine, being a 30-unit motel that takes cash, there wasn't a lot of information on the 30 people that had been staying there. In some cases, detectives were only provided a name and nothing more. Once receiving the information from Darlene, the police reached out to Kenneth Ackerman Jr., Robert's brother. It was then learned that Kenneth was the manager of a little place called the Tiki Lodge Motel. Not surprising to police, Kenneth shared he didn't know what was going on, but his brother had come by his place of work on the 4th. He didn't do much, just made a phone call. Oh, mm-hmm. That's when police knew they had the right guy. He had used his brother's work phone to make the arrangements with Roxanne to see the property at 11 a.m. As strong as that evidence was, it was all circumstantial. Whoever they belonged to, the person had never been arrested and no prints were on file. But once they had a suspect, they were able to run his info through every system they had and found a match. Mm. Robert Ackerman had taken a high security job, which required him to get fingerprinted. They were a match to those found on the tape and garage door. Side note, he is ex-military. And I found that very shocking that you aren't fingerprinted for the military?
1: Well, didn't they just say he was because he had a high-ranking job? No,
0: it was a different job. It was a totally – it had nothing to do with – Oh, yeah, I guess not.
1: Maybe they only do it when you're, you know, so high up. Isn't that
0: wild? Like, it shouldn't be for security. I feel like we should know with potential weapons (sighs) and AWOL and –
1: A lot of this, like, personal privacy stuff, I feel like we could avoid so many issues if we all did DNA. Some stuff, yeah. I get – That people argue on that. That But also I feel
0: like if you are going to sign up to be a government employee. You
1: should give that right. Why? I mean, I have
0: I had to get fingerprinted when I worked in schools every school year.
1: Oh, yeah. Teachers have to. So why wouldn't the military? So like
0: if you're given weapons. So
1: was it overlooked or was it just is it just not something I think it's just
0: not something they do
1: unless you are so. Yeah. For security security. clearance
0: or Mm -hmm. an arrest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So luckily he applied for that other job where they did put his fingerprints into a system. An arrest warrant was filed, but Darlene let the police know Robert wasn't home. He had left almost immediately after the murders and was heading back to California. Following the breadcrumbs left by Robert's credit card usage, police were able to trace him to Stockton, California, 350 miles from Medford. On December 13, 1995, at 4.15 a.m., Robert Ackerman was arrested. While making the arrest, the police executed the search warrant they had for the motel room. That's where they found a 25 caliber handgun that was eventually proven to have been the gun used to kill Roxanne and Michelle. Along with the gun, the search turned up a homemade silencer device, which had also been used in the murders.
1: Was it a potato?
0: No, it was very interesting looking. It's this metal thing. I I don't know what kind of piping he had or something. And then he stuffed it with fabric and material. Oh. And... So actually that worked out for the investigation because that material left fibers on the women. I see. And also it absorbed fluid, and they were able to test that, and it was found to be the blood of both the women. So it was proven that the silencer was the same one used in the murders. Wow. The police brought Robert in for questioning. While they provided him with his Miranda rights, when he requested a lawyer, they continued speaking with him for an additional 13 minutes. But more on that later. Once speaking to police, Robert confessed. He confessed to the kidnapping and killing of Roxanne and Michelle. But then, to everyone's surprise, the confessions kept coming. Uh oh. Robert confessed he had placed the phone call from his brother's work to set up the viewing with Roxanne, and he had a plan in mind. He felt that a property manager would either be carrying or have access to a lot of funds. And anyone that has ever worked any kind of property management anything can tell you that's not going to be the case. As he told it, once Roxanne arrived at the property, Robert handcuffed her and took her purse. When he demanded a security deposit check to be written to him, Roxanne explained that for the sum as big as he was requesting, the check would require the signature of herself and Michelle. Eventually, he allowed Roxanne to call Lori, which was the strange phone call where she said she had been out shopping. Desperate to actually see his robbery through, Robert had Roxanne call Michelle to have her meet up so she could sign the check also. Once Michelle arrived, Robert bound and gagged her as well. A few hours later, he had them climb into the back of the truck. The coroner speculating Robert had actually cut the leg bindings so they could get into the truck bed, and he came to that conclusion based on a large cut on the front of Michelle's leg. Once in the car, he shot each woman twice, once behind the ear, once in front of it. That was when he drove the truck to the other complex's parking lot and abandoned it, using items from the truck to cover the bodies. Feeling like they weren't concealed enough, the following morning he returned with his own moving boxes.
1: I have a question. So they were both shot twice. Yes. And both of them shot in the same place.
0: Yes. Isn't that interesting?
1: Very. You
0: don't often, well, I mean, I feel like you rarely hear of executions. Except for
1: execution style. That's the only one, but not from two different angles. Yeah.
0: That's unique yes i found that very disturbing because it's like mm-hmm. you really premeditate very deliberate yeah and taking your time and i mean probably unnecessary you yeah. know to do twice but yeah to like have, a,
1: like he had like he felt an urge to do
0: that yeah to have two women laying down and to do it the same way for both yeah yeah it's creepy gives you an idea of how um unwell he is shall we say The women's deaths were not only a huge loss for the Medford community as a whole, but struck fear through the gay community, which the ladies were so involved in. From the start, it was assumed that the women had been targeted because they were not only lesbians, but they were outspoken, the most upsetting kind of lesbian, one that wants to speak out for their rights. Ah! But when the theory of Roxanne and Michelle's murders being a hate crime was presented to Robert, He assured everyone, including his own father, that it was merely a robbery gone wrong. Then came a confession no one expected. Robert admitted that on October 3rd of 1995, almost exactly two months prior to the double homicide, Robert informed police he had murdered his friend Scott George in California. While the confession was remarkable, his reasoning wasn't. Robert claimed he and Scott were driving home after going out to a bar. With one hand on the wheel and the other around his gun, Robert shot and killed Scott, just to see what it would feel like. Robert then disposed of Scott's body in an abandoned mine on his father's property. It was right after the killing of Scott that Robert talked his mother into moving north to Medford.
1: That is so disturbing that you could just be sitting next to your friend and then you're dead.
0: Who's driving. He did it while driving, fired multiple shots. Scott George was born in Vasilia, California, but grew up in the small farming community of Exeter, California. He loved to water ski, line dance, and basically any other activity involving people. Scott and Robert were friends by default. When Robert lost his job the previous summer, he had moved back in with his mom. She had been dating Scott's dad, Art, and she was hoping the boys could be friends and that Scott, the outgoing friend maker, could help her son do the same. Scott did what he could as he loved to help people. He took Robert out to bars and even out on his dad's boat. On that fateful October night, Scott had just broken up with his fiancée, or she had broken up with him. There are conflicting reports. And at 23 years old, he was seeking support and friendship from Robert as he spent the evening emotional and drinking. Then they headed home, Scott's life ending soon after with three shots to the head and two in the heart. Robert took the $14 from Scott's wallet, wrapped him in a tarp, and put him in a storage unit before driving out to the abandoned mine the following day. His body was found 11 weeks after he went missing.
1: I am in shock. He shot him five times.
0: While he was driving. While
1: he was driving. Yes. Three in the head. Yes. I mean, I know that's a close proximity,
0: but wow. I mean, to not even... If you take away the horror of all of it, the physicality of like driving and kickback and brightness and loud noise and all of that while you're driving. And also you're saying you just wanted to see what it would feel like to kill someone, but you're doing it in a totally disconnected way. I think there's
1: more to that story. Oh, do you? I do. Um, Also, I need to digest that. So he puts him in a storage unit and he wasn't found for 11 weeks.
0: No. So he shoots him in the vehicle goes that night and puts him in a storage unit okay. and then the following day him. takes him to, so his dad had ah. property and on the property there was an abandoned mine oh, and then I he dropped him okay, into yeah. that.
1: Then that's very hard to find.
0: And then 11 weeks later that's where he was found.
1: Oh that's so
0: sad. Yeah. Robert was extradited to Oregon from California and charged with 4 counts of aggravated murder, 2 counts of first-degree kidnapping, and 1 count of first-degree robbery. On September 11, 1996, Robert pleaded guilty to all charges. On October 17th the following year, a jury decided that due to Robert's deliberate actions, he should be sentenced to death. So off to death row he went. But that's just part of the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In 1995, 13% of hate crimes were directed at those in the LGBTQIA community. The numbers today are about 18% or 2,000 incidents, but those are just the ones that are reported. Including ones targeting non-binary, bisexual-identifying, and transgender people, those numbers make crimes against the LGBTQIA community my least favorite but most often used word... Disproportionate. At around 18 million people, or only 5.6% of the population, the 18% of hate crime victimization rate is extremely high. In fact, one in five gay, lesbian, or bisexual persons will experience a hate crime at some point in their life. Transgender people, one in four. Not only do LGBTQIA community members experience violence at an increased rate, their victimization often continues in the courtroom if their cases are actually taken seriously and charges are brought, that is. 14 states have laws banning the gay panic defense. Only 14, leaving 57% of the United States' LGBTQIA plus population without protection. What is the gay panic defense? Well, it's sadly exactly how it sounds. But there are different versions of it, though. According to LGBTBar.org, the gay panic can be used as a defense to show insanity or diminished capacity, meaning that once the defendant learned the sexual orientation or gender identity of the victim, it triggered a nervous breakdown in the defendant, causing a gay panic disorder, which of course has been debunked by the American Psychiatric Association decades ago, but medical progress doesn't always coincide with legal progress. The other use of gay panic is defensive provocation, meaning the victim's sexuality, especially if they made a proposition to the defendant, is provoking in its own right, making it okay to kill someone because of said provocation. Well, then
1: I want to use that every time someone I don't want hitting on me hits on me.
0: Honestly. Yeah, the catcall defense. Yeah. He made me uncomfortable. Yep. I was provoked. Lastly, there's the defense of self-defense. When we think of self-defense, we think I shot the guy that was attacking me in self-defense, meaning they kicked, hit, stabbed, something violent, right? This defense is used to justify violence towards an unarmed person, their only weapon being their sexual orientation or gender identity. Oh boy. All of these defenses not only are straight-up horseshit, they are damaging to the LGBTQIA community. They empower those driven by hate, fear, and bigotry. It also continues the stereotypes and stigma of what should be from a bygone era that gay and trans people are only trying to trick or embarrass others, making the violence they experience validated by those that wish them harm and continued limited rights. It seems not only unbelievable that there isn't a national law protecting all LGBTQIA members, but these laws banning the gay panic defense haven't been in place very long. Six of the eight states passed their laws in just the last two years. The newest state to pass one, Oregon. And when was that? May 13th of 2021, a month ago. I don't have the words for how frustrating and disappointing and surreal that is, but I will say at least it's passed. So better late than never, but we've got a lot of work ahead of us. According to the American Bar Association, here are some steps you can take to help pass laws banning the gay panic defense. You can contact legislators and governors in states currently trying to ban the gay trans panic defense. You can be an advocate in states where there is currently no proposed panic ban. You can let your own politicians know that equality under the law should apply to the victims of hate crimes as well. And you can support organizations that work to protect and uplift the LGBTQIA plus community, like the Trevor Project, GLAD, PFLAG, Human Rights Campaign, on and on. As investigators and prosecutors started to put the case together, they knew they had the evidence, but they also needed the motive. Robert said that this was a botched robbery— But who would rob someone in such a manner and allow it to escalate to the point that two people would be killed? A robbery like that must have come from a desperate man. Digging into Robert's finances and spending habits, they found the source of desperation. And her name was Ecstasy.
1: Oh, boy.
0: (laughs) Before moving in with his mother in California, Robert was in Las Vegas. And while there, he started to patronize the strip club Palomino. That's where he met the nude dancer, Ecstasy, also known by her non-stage name, Alla Kosova, a Russian immigrant that at 21 years old caught Robert's eye. That first night in the club, he got a dance. Then he kept going to the club, getting lap and private dances from Ecstasy. When Robert went to the club, he would spend anywhere between $500 and $1,500, almost all on X, as her friends called her. She didn't mind. Sometimes it was nice to only have to be with Robert for yeah, the night. She
1: didn't mind well, getting <laughs> paid to only have to do it to one exactly. guy. Exactly.
0: That's what she had said was like, I didn't have to hustle all these different right. guys for a dance all night. I could just sit with this one guy. She probably and be knows set. what he likes, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, man. Yeah, it's the dream. During the trial, she shared that, yes, a relationship did develop between <gasps> the two of them. A platonic friendship. Oh. That's why she didn't think anything of it when she would go out to a meal with him every once in a while.
1: Mm, okay, wait. A platonic friendship where he's paying you to nude dance on him.
0: Well, it's still platonic. Obviously, that's a sexualized interaction, but there, that boundary being there. I think
1: maybe he saw it differently than she did. Well, yeah, it's
0: the classic, the guy being like, that stripper loves me. And it's like, no, she's at work. Like, yeah, you're at her place of work. Give her money and leave her alone and cheer for her when she does cool stuff.
1: I just had to clarify because this is getting a little interesting. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, so they're just friends. So they go get a couple meals. Not a big deal. So the dinners, the diamond earrings he gifted her, the dances he bought, it was all adding up. And so were his feelings. He would refer to X as his girlfriend. Oh, there we go. Mm Mm-hmm. He would pay what he needed to make sure he could have her for the whole night if he went to the club. And then he started to send letters to X expressing he was developing more than platonic feelings for her. She just ignored it. He was a customer, and that was the boundary. Then he stopped going to the club. She hadn't heard from him for a bit before receiving a phone call one day. It was Robert, and he was asking to borrow money, about $1,000. She didn't have it to loan, so that was the end of it. Then she didn't see Robert for a long time, and it wasn't until mid-December 1995 that he surprised her, sneaking up behind as she entered the building for her shift.
1: Oh, no, (laughs) Robert.
0: It was 9 p.m., and he stayed there until closing. Robert was only in town for a visit, so X or Alla agreed to meet him the following day for lunch. Alla was surprised she was asked to pick Robert up at the MGM, as he was usually the one to drive. Thinking nothing of it, Alla followed through with the plan and met up with Robert for lunch and a movie. As it started to get dark, Robert's behavior changed and he asked Alla to pull over because he needed to talk. After she did so, he pulled out a stun gun and a regular gun and pointed both of them at her, rambling about how she never loved him like he did her, that she only used him for his money, and she was never there for him. As he did this, he zapped the stun gun over and over. Alla, terrified, started to comfort Robert, assuring him she would be there for him and be his friend. While scared, his erratic and extreme behavior felt more like a call for help to her. She didn't think he was actually capable of hurting anyone, and she didn't know anything about the murders in Oregon. So when he let her stop at a gas station to go to the bathroom, she merely used the opportunity to work through her own feelings. She didn't call the police. Instead, she trusted she would be okay and got back in the car, driving Robert to the MGM, where he got out. After dropping him off, Alla drove to work. She informed her supervisor about what happened, but it wasn't until police showed up to inquire about Robert that the incident in the car was shared. And I can't blame her. She's in an industry that is often not listened to or taken seriously by police. She didn't know where the guy was going to be or if he was even following her.
1: That's really scary.
0: Isn't that so scary? She's very lucky. And I'm sure that that's kind of normal. I mean, I in reading that associated it to when I lived in Vegas doing real estate. And again, a job is a job and a hustle is a hustle. And I'm picking up clients at all hours to show places or to do stuff. I was telling Josh, like, my boss, as her assistant, I would just be sent to, like, go to the movies with a client, like a grown man. Or like, oh, can you go take so-and-so? very and so? weird to me. Yeah, can you take so-and-so to the strip club? Like, so it's the same thing of you're just trying to keep the customer happy It just happens to be a very intimate customer relationship. And, you know, it's like, so you can't blame her for feeling those things. You don't want to lose this guy who's, you know, paying a lot of your bills. You know, it makes sense. Armed with Alice's story, the police now had a very clear motive. Their 27-year-old suspect, who they already had physical evidence against, was found to have more than $80,000 in debt and a completely depleted retirement plan. Whoa. All of that, said investigators, was more than enough motive. Once in prison for the kidnapping and murders of Roxanne and Michelle, Robert started to show signs of struggling with his mental health, being found hanging on one occasion needing to be cut down by officers and cutting himself on another. I do want to clarify the hanging thing because according to a correctional officer that worked there, it was more – I don't want to say that it was a a fake attempt or anything, but it was more kind of the idea of he had tied some sheets around his neck and then asked them to cut them off of him. So it wasn't like they found him actively hanging. I see. Um, It was more – You know, again, I don't want to say that they were for attention, but they didn't see them as credible threats. But they did watch him and put him on suicide watch and had him in solitary. Good. His mental illness only got worse by the time his California trial rolled around. He had lawyers quit because he would threaten them. He had lawyers quit because they couldn't get along. Threatening people was Robert's forte. In fact, he had even called and threatened to kill his own father once he had been turned in. When threatening one of his lawyers, he said, quote, I know where you live and I will take your life during the course of the trial. His lawyer saying he is a sociopathic personality and a cold blooded killer. I wasn't going to take any chances with this. There was even a family friend that said Robert had shown up at their house. And this was again in mid-December, right after the murders. And he had handcuffed her to the bed, demanding money. When someone came to the door, he let the woman go and she made a run for it. Again, I understand why people don't report things, but it's important that in finding your strength to report such things and telling your story, you might end up saving someone else's life in the future. Thinking they may have a brutal serial killer on their hands, investigators looked into another death related to Robert. Robert's 30-year-old aunt, Sherry Renee Herrera, had been found off a California highway in March of 1993. Seeing a pattern in Robert's aggressive behavior, police looked into any possible connections. Authorities in 1995 said they were looking into it, but there was no real connection besides them being family and him being a murderer. And that's all I could find. There's no information about if they found Sherry's killer or if they maybe just felt they had the person responsible behind bars so they didn't want to worry about it. Do we know her cause of death? Not that I could find. There's like very little information. So I'm going to keep digging and hopefully find some sort of information. And if I do, we will definitely do a mini episode on Patreon about it. Robert was eventually, in 2002, almost 10 years after his death, brought to justice for Scott George's murder and was sentenced to death, which he was already serving in Oregon. With both states putting death sentences on hold, he was to spend the rest of his life behind bars. In 1996, Robert could have faced more charges, adding to the murdering and kidnapping, a charge of a hate crime. That's because Robert wrote a three-page letter from prison explaining why he did what he did. Instead of having been drunk and annoyed by his melancholy friend, combined with a desire to kill being his reasoning for killing Scott George, it was revealed Scott was bisexual, and Robert claimed he made a pass at him, Mm, leading to the shooting. Also known... As gay panic.
1: I wondered if that might come up. I was trying in my head to picture what would cause someone to just shoot someone they're in a car with mm-hmm. who they've identified as their friend. And I thought potentially that could be. Yeah, clearly not he a was plan. Drinking,
0: you know? Mm hmm. Yep. Reactive, mm-hmm. emotional. Yeah. Sending the letter to his home newspaper, he stated he was scared before, but now he didn't care what anyone thought, not even a jury that he didn't care if he was sentenced to death. He never liked life anyway. He claimed his father had sexually abused him when he was a child, an accusation his father denies, and that he made his decision to target Roxanne when they had first met. Two weeks before the killings, when he was being shown the apartment by Roxanne, Robert realized she was a lesbian. Harboring hatred for homosexuals, he decided to target Roxanne, Perhaps robbery was a motivation, but in saying things like, quote, because they were lesbians, I didn't think anyone would miss them, and I've known bisexual women, and that's cool. I have no problem with that. I have no compassion for lesbians or bisexual or gay men. I can't deal with it. That does sound a lot more like a hate crime. The robbery claim was, according to Robert, made up to protect him when he went to prison. He didn't want to be a bad guy that just killed gay people because that might be bad news for him in the clink. So he added the robbery, and the cops bought it, even though there was money and valuables left behind, including multiple vehicles. It was interesting watching the detectives on the two shows the story was featured on, and even reading about officers that had to deal with Robert's erratic behavior. Everyone was dismissive. Nope, the evidence is it's a robbery. That's what we're sticking with. No hate crime charges were even brought on Robert after he confessed what his real motive was. Why was robbery so believable but homophobia wasn't? Or was it just that so many people like the police officers and lawyers and all of those people already had those biases so it was hard for them to accept that it could go so far? Either way, it is unfathomable that they didn't take the opportunity to charge him even more, since he not only confessed to those intentions, he kind of proved it by saying he targeted Roxanne after the showing. The town was so shaken, as was the gay community, I just don't know why there wasn't more of an effort to recognize that a robbery being involved or not, he had other intentions, and they were hate-related. In the end, Robert was found guilty for the deaths of Scott George, Roxanne Ellis, and Michelle Addell. While the death penalty was off the table, his sentence was commuted to life when, in 2011, it was found Robert was too delusional to assist in his appeals process. A twisted sociopath. That's how Robert and his family describe him. In the letter to the paper, he said, I place no blame for my crimes, but you have to ask why I have no compassion for people, and why did I kill? Why did Robert kill? Here was a young, handsome to some people, successful supervisor with a trucking company, former Air Force serviceman with an NBA who had taken the lives of others while wasting his own. Was he simply a monster that couldn't have anyone in his path? Was he a sociopath that had no reason? Was it hate motivated? We will never know the answer to those and so many other questions as Robert Ackerman died in prison on October 27th, 2018. He had been in solitary confinement and was found dead of apparent natural causes at the age of 50. When it came to Robert's appeals early on, his lawyers argued about the 13 minutes of conversation officers had with him after he had asked for the lawyer. Luckily, while that was in the appeal, it was found to not have an effect, so it didn't overturn the whole case, but that's the law, so like...
1: So those 13 minutes are when he actually admitted to it.
0: Yeah, so he was already talking, and at some point he said, so I don't know if he was talking mm-hmm. extensively and already confessing and then said. I see. Uh, but either way, it's like those 13 minutes could have cost the whole the thing. Whole case. We've seen it happen. Like, please cops, stick to the law so that we don't have to worry about monsters like this getting away because... You kept talking to him. Something so simple. Another thing that came up in the appeal was there was a court reporter who was making duplicates of some of the tapes. And she accidentally recorded over Ooh, part of the trial tape. What a dummy. Yeah. So they lost about 90 minutes of witness interviews and, and oh. different documentation. So, again, this was in the appeal. But luckily it was not seen as having any kind of effect on anything. So it didn't. Can
1: you imagine
0: being, being the that person, person that did that? I'd be like, "Oh, hey guys, uh, I left something in my car," and then I never talked to them I again. Once and I changed my name,
1: deleted oh. my own file of data for something, yeah. and it was like my world ended <laughs> yeah. that day.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. Like you're sitting there making a to make a duplicate, and you're doing it the wrong way, and you're yeah, just like, erasing it's almost like it. They should have a professional
1: do the duplicate, and that's what you can duplicate. Yeah, it? you know.
0: So again, luckily that didn't derail the entire thing because it totally could have. When it came to Roxanne and Michelle, a friend said of their love of one another, quote, They complemented each other, their personalities. This is how I'm going to memorialize them. Michelle was the flame that burns, and Roxanne was the candle that supported her and gave her this energy and fuel to shine. Because that's what this is all about. Love. The love between partners of every kind. The love that is lacking in the hearts of those with judgment and prejudice the love of those that have been lost to violence that we keep in our hearts and memories. Now, here's a fun fact. Back before a previous president that we won't actually mention by name was elected, he had a little show called The Apprentice. In season four, there was a contestant. She was a spa owner and ended up winning third place in the competition. She was going by her married name then, known as Alla Wartenberg aka oh. Alakasova oh. aka ecstasy. ecstasy I'll let her close things out as I think she says it best that was dirty
2: that's okay yeah. you know what it'll be even more sweeter when we win they play dirty and they all lose karma gets people mm-hmm.
0: With this case being covered on Forensic Files and a new season starting on July 11th, we are once again so happy to be joined by the one and only Nancy Duffy, executive producer of everyone's favorite gateway show to all true crime, Forensic Files. Nancy, thank you so much for taking your time to speak with us, it is great to talk to you again.
2: Oh, you're so welcome.
0: When we last saw each other, it was at the end of February 2020, just weeks before the world shut down. How did COVID affect creating and releasing season two of Forensic Files 2?
2: Well, it was really difficult. I'll just say bluntly, obviously, we had to, you know, because all of our Police partners, all of our law enforcement partners there, everything was shut down. So trying to many of these cases, as you know, we we asked them to go into the evidence room. They pull boxes, they pull files, photos from the crime scene, et cetera. And we had a very difficult time. We had to kind of wait until covid restrictions lifted so they could go into their, you know, vaults and whatever, and get some of these assets for us so we could share with the audience. So that was difficult. And we were not able to travel producers. So our amazing technical group at CNN was able to figure out a way for us to do the interviews remotely. So we hired freelance crews in the area. They were masked, tested, wore gloves, practiced social distancing. And because it was before vaccines and um, they shot the interviews and the and the um, producers did the interviews using FaceTime on a phone on an iPad, actually, so that the person could see through the eyeline. They could be looking at the iPad so as if they were looking at the person so that did not create distortion for eyeline. And that's how we did it, because we didn't want to do a Zoom you know, we were we had to want to keep the integrity of the series and we didn't want to fall behind and not have a season this year. So we went through extraordinary means to do that. And with the recreations, there was a you know, we, we were able to wait until there were vaccinations and we did quarantining and we everyone had to be vaccinated. And but uh, it was it was difficult, but we we did get it done, I'll say.
0: Regarding Bill Camp's fabulous narration, last year was his first, so I'm sure he was feeling more comfortable in the role going into season two, but obviously distancing made it tricky. How difficult was it to get all of those moving parts in post-production to work from afar?
2: Well, actually, we are racing to the finish line with the recreations and the narrations right now because... It's hard for Bill to really tell the story without seeing the reenactment. You know, the reenactments are such a big part of it. So while we had the scripts written, we had to really wait. And so we are recording as we speak. We've only recorded narration in five episodes. And we're you know, racing to the end to get these narrations done. And Bill is shooting a series for Showtime right now called American Rust. So he's having to fly in from Pittsburgh. He re- watches everything. We go through the recreations and the script and the screener. He tracks it and then he goes back and then he comes back again. And so it's that's what we're doing to get them done in time. But I will say the show is looking great. I'm so proud of everybody. The show is looking great. The stories are great and everything has just come together. Everyone has sort of put on their ingenuity hat and come up with workarounds that are quite amazing.
0: Forensic Files is such a tightly run ship and an institution to television. I'm sure viewers won't even realize that the season was born
2: from such chaos. I hope you are correct. And I have to say we could not do it without our law enforcement partners and the scientists. They have just been amazing to work with us in this way because it's just nuts, right? Pandemic, who knew?
0: Last summer, especially here in Portland, but nationally and internationally, we were all witness to the social uprising surrounding police brutality and race relations. Did that have any impact on the stories you told or how you wanted to tell them?
2: Well, you know, Forensic files is not political in any way. We are not political. We are all about law enforcement and the science. And uh, so we really have no, it really did not impact us because our our law enforcement partners understand that. We're not political. We focus on how how does science solve these unbelievable mysteries? How do these guys come up with these amazing techniques and uh, and and how it helps the families, the victims' families, and we. So we we stay pretty much to our identity.
0: What can we expect from the new season of Forensic Files too?
2: I think we have some great mysteries. We have some great mysteries, some great twists, and I think really, uh, I, I'm really I, everyone's really excited about this season. There are a couple in the Northwest. A couple episodes do take place in the Northwest. I will say. And um, we this year, we have 14 that will that will be ready to premiere July 11th. They begin July 11th. And um, I think they're pretty great. There's some really interesting science, some unusual science, some unusual use of things that were not intended to solve a murder. But they did. And just some really great ingenuity and twists to these mysteries.
0: Finally, Josh and I had a chance to meet your amazing production team at Forensic Files. We know it takes a village to bring us new episodes. Is there anything you'd like to say to everyone that has
2: worked on the show? I mean, I would just say that we are grateful to everybody who helped us bring this season to light. And it's been difficult, but we could not have done it, as I say, without families and law enforcement and the scientists, the forensic people, Paul Dowling. Vince Sherry, just all, all of the resources that we have used, all the technical capabilities of CNN, engineering and operations and the crews in the field. We would not be able to do this without an amazing team of people, of these producers. And we're just grateful to be able to bring this amazing season to the people.
0: The new season of Forensic Files 2 premieres on July 11th on HLN at 10 p.m. Eastern with two brand new episodes back-to-back, so set those DVRs now. Our thanks again to Nancy Duffy, Karen Reynolds, and Grayson Thaggard with HLN. Okay, real question. Do you think I need to explain what a pager is for no, the young, fo- young for folks? young folks? no. No. We,
1: okay. we skewed a 25 to 50.
0: Okay. Just go with suffocation. No breathing. No breathing. <laughs> <laughs> Police went to the... Police... I'm sorry, I was not <laughs> like... to you. Whoever they... <clears throat> Hello? It's uh, Funky Dunk. Funky Dunk. <laughs> <laughs> That's where they found a twenty-five caliber handgun... Hand gum. Oh, I love that flavor. Death. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Exeter. Yeah, that's
1: Exeter. Exeter yeah. Okay. I think that's Vasilia. Vasilia. I would say Vasilia. Exeter okay. is what I call my turds. <laughs> uh,
0: whoa. Uh, Just
1: kidding. That's how you not get funny up.
0: Dumb. And you're like, bye, Exeter. <laughs> you Exetered my butt. So that's why I didn't get dry humped because I dated a cheater. So thanks for making me feel bad.
1: No, because no. now I have coworkers that I'm tell kidding. me they regularly listen. And they love it. They don't need to know about my gene humping. <laughs> so was he addicted to ecstasy? <laughs>
0: yes. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at k-y-f-i-f-e-r dot com
1: order.